I would invite you to join me and you're welcome to pray out loud or quietly to yourself. You're all on mute. And if you hear a sound, it must, and it's coming from your room, just go on mute, please. Join me in the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. I have a PowerPoint that I'll be using as I talk through the journey of 12-step spirituality. From my standpoint, spirituality doesn't necessarily mean to mean anything to do with God, just for those who are perhaps on the line who have some type of negative history or resistance to the fourth dimensional vocabulary. Bill Wilson, although it came from a Christian milieu, the Oxford group attempted when he wrote the big book to neutralize any vocabulary that connected to any type of formal religion or tradition. And I've continued to in that spirit. For me, spirituality means relationship. One of the relationship, relationship with reality, relationship with myself and relationship with other people. One of the methodologies I learned early on from both my hospital experience that my wife went through, but also in the sponsorship and step guide exposure that I had was a very dynamic process of asking a question and holding the question in the milieu of prayer. That's what we've just done. We've prayed, whether it's a prayer in the classic spiritual sense or whether that's a prayer in the sense of a expression of a positive affirmation for advanced consciousness. Um, it doesn't matter what the words are. It does matter what the intention is. One of my teachers is a Franciscan priest, Richard Rohr, R-O-H-R. And he says, when you ask a question and you don't answer it, and you hold the question in the milieu of prayer, the energy of an asked but unanswered question will percolate and take you to a place that you didn't know existed. It will give you information that you didn't know was available. You do need some information. That's the way we're built. We need to know something usually before we do something, but then we need to do something. I was asked, what's your relationship with alcohol? I got some information in that hospital program about the family disease and the nature of addiction. When you start, you cannot stop, and when you stop, you cannot stay stopped. Those are the only two criteria. Anything else is story. Anything else is drama. The drama and the story are important only in that if there's smoke, there's usually fire. So there's symptoms of a problem, but not necessarily a description of the nature of the problem. I took this action of writing out in bullet points my story in relationship to alcohol, and then I read it out. Writing it out was important. Reading it out was the precipitation of an experience that I have a problem. When I wrote it out, I suspected it. When I read it out, it confirmed, oh, I have a problem with alcohol. 
I was 43 years old. It was a shock to me, not that I was an alcoholic, but that I had never seen it. That was the biggest shock. I didn't know that I didn't know, and I couldn't see that I didn't see. And as you can see from the chart, that experience led to more questions. No, now what do I do? Well, it leads us to more questions, and these are now for you. I hope you have a pen or paper, pen and pencil or paper, because I do believe that it will be a benefit to you to be active in participation in this time together. Is my life serial suffering? It may not be connected to addiction. I mentioned the signs for me, and I got it from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. That summary is on page 44, the beginning of chapter four, when Bill is standing on the path that he walked in the first three chapters, looking back over his shoulder at where he's been. The problem of alcohol, the addiction, there may be, you may be experiencing problems of addiction other than alcohol. There's only two criteria. When you start, are you able to stop? You have an experience of not being able to stop more than once or twice or thrice. And that's an interesting criteria, but the more important criteria is when you stop, can you stay stopped? I was able to stop for a week. I was able to stop for a month. I was able to stop for three months, but I always started again, not remembering actually that for the reasons that I quit. But I discovered that that wasn't the real problem. The first half of the first step, dealing with alcohol and or addiction, that's not really the problem. It is a problem. The problem is the spiritual malady. It's about my life. It's about living in reality without the substance or the process that was, in fact, my medication. Is my life serial suffering? Do I really believe that my life can change? Now, I'm preaching to the choir here because we've got over 100 people today who obviously believe their life can change, and they are aware that some change is necessary. Probably most of you are not dealing with an addiction directly. And if you are, you're absolutely welcome to the call. It will be, I think, very helpful to you. The primary help is going to be with people who have abstinence from their addiction, but who have suffering in their life on a daily basis. And I'm not talking about just minor stuff. I'm talking about major stuff. This man who took me through the steps in 1988, I was four years sober, a story for a different day. He said, the consciousness that created the problem cannot be the consciousness that solves the problem. He quoted Einstein. He said, Herb, look up at the screen. You have a lot of information, but you have very little transformation. I have an advanced education in philosophy, psychology, theology. I studied to be a Catholic priest for seven years. Then I studied to be a psychologist for five years. I had therapy group and individual. I was trained to be a therapist. I didn't become a priest and I didn't become a psychologist. I believe alcohol and alcoholism took me off those paths. And then I was on a path of human development. And then I got into AA for four years and I did the drill. 
having a sponsor, calling a sponsor every day, that was his suggestion. Going to a meeting every day, that was his suggestion. Getting a book and reading it and working the steps, that was his suggestion. I followed suggestions. If at the end of today you get only one word from this as a mantra, it will change your life, and that is willingness. I was willing in the hospital to stop drinking to support my wife's recovery. Alcohol was removed from me as a gift of grace. I have no explanation for it. I didn't think I was a problem drinker. I certainly didn't think I was an alcoholic. I didn't pray. I didn't make a decision to stop drinking forever. And I didn't go to AA. Alcohol was removed. And my first day of sobriety was February 21st, 1984. I've not had an inclination to drink since then. It's just removed a gift of neutrality. The book will promise that after the ninth step. I know that now. I didn't know that then. And I didn't know that for the first five years in AA. I thought you went to meetings and you got sober. You got a sponsor and you took direction and you did acts contrary to your will and you got sober. I had no realization that, in fact, I have no choice whether I get sober or not. I have no choice whether I get abstinent or not. This man took me through the steps in 1988 and I had a spiritual awakening. The problem as I discovered it and as he pointed it out, was my mind and I cannot solve my problem with a defective mind. The consciousness that created the problem cannot be the consciousness that solves the problem. I need a new consciousness. He introduced me to what he calls the set aside prayer. He gave some validity to it, not because it's a prayer of AA or any official prayer, prayer is not about the words, it's about the intention. This happens to be the set-aside prayer de jour that I've been using in my workshops for a long time, but it comes from many references in the big book to lay aside prejudice. On page 58 was the one he cited that day. Some of us have tried to hold on to our old ideas and the result was nil until we let go absolutely. The result was nil until we let go absolutely. And he said to me, can you let go of your knowledge and your old ideas and your experience? Absolutely. And I knew it wasn't a trick question and I said, absolutely not. So he gave me the prayer that he called the set aside prayer, which has morphed over time based on my experience. I would invite you to pray this prayer now with the commitment that during this next few hours that you be a whiteboard on which the spirit can write new information and a new experience. God, please set aside everything that I think I know about myself, my brokenness, my spiritual path, and you for an open mind and a new experience with myself, my brokenness, my spiritual path, and especially you. In the milieu of that prayer, ask yourself these questions. Where is my life not working? You've come to this workshop perhaps out of curiosity or perhaps because you've had some exposure to my prior work, or perhaps you just have something, some itch in you that you can't scratch. Some longing in you that's never been fulfilled. That was my experience. 
I prided myself on being a seeker, but I wasn't a finder. My actions were not effective. How are yours actions in terms of getting literally what you want and need uh, to have contentment in, t in your life? Do you really want something to change? You've heard the phrase before, I'm sure. If nothing changes, then nothing changes. Most human beings don't like change. They're afraid of the unknown. They resist change. Change in attitude, change in thoughts, change in feelings, but especially change in behavior. And that's all promised in the big book process, isn't it? That's the definition of a spiritual awakening. Listen to step 12. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. There's the mission. That's the promise. That's the process. A spiritual awakening is a change. We don't have to get mystical and we don't have to get mysterious. It's a change in the way I think and feel and behave. What changes would you like? That would be worthy of making a note right now, at least of the question, and hold the question in the milieu of the set-aside attitude. And then at the end of today, perhaps, or at the end of the week, or at uh, sometime down the road, after some meditation on that question, allow yourself to hear the wee small voice. You've heard that phrase before many times, the wee small voice. I've used it for 30 years. About four months ago, I challenged myself because words are really important. And I said, gee, I, I've never challenged myself on that phrase. I've heard it. I've read it. It sounds really cool. It sounds very spiritual, wee small voice. Is it the correct translation? And I went back to some dictionaries that have helped me in the past. Dictionaries are the best companion to the big book so that we get a broadening and deepening of our understanding of the words that were used in 1939 and are even used today. And in this particular research, I found that that we small voice is a poor translation, actually. The translation is a tiny whispering sound. When you think about it, that's not subtle. Tiny, whispering sound. There's no voice and there's no words. There's just a vibration. There's just an energy. And it's very quiet and it whispers like the wind, like the breath, like the spiros, or that's the Greek word that gives us the word spirit or spiritual breath, spiros. Tiny, whispering sound. Some people call it intuition. Some people call it instinct. Some people call it inspiration. It depends on where it comes from, the head or the heart or the gut or some other deeper place in us. But that itch that we have, that we can't scratch, that thirst that we have, that we can't slake, 
that hunger that we have that we can't fill. That's the spiritual condition, the hole in the soul that Pascal says. The hole in the soul can only be filled by God. The shape of the hole in the soul is God. Amazing phrase, actually, worthy of some meditation and contemplation. I particularly like the word, the phrase, the question, what is the invitation? Every morning when I complete my meditation practice, it's anywhere from 30 to 45 minutes, I end up asking myself, so today, what is the invitation? Periodically, I go on my own retreat at home, or I go to a retreat center like Mary and Joseph, or some other nice, quiet, conducive place for three days or 10 days, silent retreat. Not only am I looking at what is the invitation for today or this year, but literally what is the invitation and the destiny and and the meaning of my life. When I listen and I respond, I find that my life is in the flow. That's my new word for this last year that I've used with a capital F. Reality as it's manifesting, the flow of reality, God manifesting, if we were to use the words and the concepts from the big book. The problem is that most of us are asleep dreaming that we're awake. That's a phrase that was used by Gurdjieff, a Russian philosopher. It's the same kind of thing that Einstein was talking about in terms of consciousness. Gurdjieff said, most human beings are asleep dreaming that they're awake. Well, that's exactly what Bill saw when he crafted the 12th step, having had a spiritual awakening. Oh, that must mean I'm spiritually asleep. Well, most of us are even psychologically asleep. We look through lenses. Notice the, 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 the illustration in the slide is blue. If my lenses are blue, those beliefs that I have, then they're going to color my perception of reality. And in fact, I'm going to see out of warped lenses delusion. And I'm going to then have thoughts that are demented. And I'm then going to have feelings that are diseased. And then I'm going to have attitudes that's distorted. And then I'm going to have behavior that's dysfunctional. Yes, I like alliteration. When I saw that graph from some psychology text that I was looking at several years ago, I thought, well, that, that just captures it perfectly. And in the 12-step process, we look at behavior and work our way back. We look at behavior to determine our attitudes and our feelings and our thoughts and our perceptions. And finally, we penetrate the unconscious. That was my experience with step four, done from the... Uh, literal interpretation of step four in the big book as well as an expansion and an extension of it based on my step guide's experience and knowledge.
My belief is the lenses through which I look. I can't look at the lenses. I'm looking through the lenses. Step four helps us to take a look at the lenses and then to regrind the lenses or to get a new pair of glasses so that we in fact wake up. Our culture says that we need to know something, feel something, and then we'll do something. Now that's not my experience in the spiritual world. It's just the reverse. I needed to do something in order to know something and then my feelings. 12-step spirituality, in summary, from my standpoint, can be seen as the first three steps are a relationship with power. That's what I mean by spirituality. I made the comment when I opened up our conversation. Spirituality doesn't necessarily have to do with God or divine or mystical or mysterious or fourth dimensional vocabulary. All of that is, in fact, what the 12-step spirituality is about. I don't want to diminish or dismiss that. But this is really about human development. You've heard the words in meetings or in books or in some conversations, maybe even with a psychologist. Are we human beings seeking a spiritual experience? Or are we spiritual beings seeking a human experience? I took it into meditation. That's a serious question. Am I a human being seeking a spiritual experience or am I a spiritual being seeking a human experience? After several weeks of meditation, I was gifted with a response. The answer is yes. I hope you're hearing that. Yes. Both like two sides of one coin. I'm a human being and the nature of me is human and the nature of me is spiritual, meaning I have a hunger and a thirst and a yearning for some sense of context and meaning and value and purpose and destiny. The very nature of my humanity demands that I find a relationship with reality, power, as I don't understand it. And then a relationship with myself, which is the gift of steps four through seven. And a relationship with others, the gift of steps eight and nine. Bill calls steps one through nine the program of recovery. And then he calls steps 10, 11, and 12 our way of living. This gives us a roadmap for today, certainly, but also in terms of the meaning of the steps, one through nine for the conversion, transformation, spiritual awakening process. It's the methodology for transformation. Bill's very clear in step 10. We will have recovered, past tense. We are placed in a position of neutrality with regard to our addiction. Pages 84, 85. Very clear. The promise of the first nine steps is neutrality with regard to our addiction, whether it be a substance addiction or a process addiction. If we finish the first nine steps, finish our ninth step, we will be placed in a position of neutrality. 
But then he says, with ominous warning, actually, if you really pay attention to the words, we're not cured. We have a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. He says we've entered the world of the spirit as we come out of the ninth step. We enter the world of the spirit. We come out of the world of self. We enter the world of the spirit. We commence this way of living. He calls 10, 11, and 12 our way of life, a daily practice. Most traditions talk about the spiritual life as a practice. We don't get perfect, and Bill was very clear about that at the end of the list of the steps on page 60. Progress, not perfection. But we practice every day, like going to a gym, like riding a bicycle, like learning to roller skate, like learning to play the piano. All of those human activities, if you have a good coach and you have some skills and you practice and show up daily, to practice, you will get better over time. The same with the spiritual life. My image of a spiritual awakening is a dimmer switch in contrast to a light switch. A light switch goes on, boom, it's on. And if you turn it off, boom, it's off. Light and dark immediately. Well, that was Bill's experience, but it's not the majority of people's experience. He saw that in Varieties of Religious Experience by William James. In the second printing of the first edition, he changed step 12 from spiritual experience to spiritual awakening. And he put Appendix 2 in the back of the book. If you haven't read it or haven't read it recently, it's a wonderful meditation because it tells you what is a spiritual experience, what is a spiritual awakening, how are they the same, and how are they different? They're the same because the product's the same. Spiritual awakening, a change in the way we think and feel and behave. They're different in the sense that a spiritual experience is like a light switch and a spiritual awakening is like a dimmer switch. That's totally my experience. The dimmer switch goes up a notch at a time very slowly. We don't even know that the lights are getting brighter, but there is a point with the accumulation of the electricity, the energy in the line, the circuit, that the lights get bright enough for us to see and to see that we didn't see and to see that we do see and to actually realize that there's more to see. And for me, it's an infinite dimmer switch because it's in pursuit of an infinite light. Infinite meaning having no beginning and having no end. This is reality as I don't understand it, but I live in it. Turning that dimmer switch up one notch at a time. And this is my image of it. Look at my picture on the screen. I lean gently into the dimmer switch with my shoulder against the dimmer switch and with inventory on a spot check basis step 10 and with meditation on a guidance basis in the morning and with the operation on principles and helping other people on a daily basis i stay gently 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 no no violence here gently pressed up against the dimmer switch pushing it forward and the lights get brighter and every day the lights get brighter and there's always more light because I'm in pursuit and in relationship with infinite light. 
But what gets in my way? Well, certainly addiction can get in my way. I used the term earlier, substance and process addiction. That's the professional technology today. Substance, alcohol, drugs, and food, process, everything else that you see on the screen, and maybe a hundred other things. Those are just a few samples. There's no substance in exercise. There's no substance in work, but there's a process in codependency and all the rest of those other non-substance addictions. And the dynamic is the same. When I start, I cannot stop. And when I stop, I cannot stay stopped. The only two criterias. And you can take a look at your life and you can challenge yourself. You may be abstinent from alcohol, but how's your relationship to work? How's your relationship to exercise? How's your relationship with your feelings, anger, and fear? How's your relationships to managing your behavior and or other people's behavior, that dynamic of codependency? How's your relationship with sex and or pornography and or relationships? The game of whack-a-mole. You pound the gopher down in one hole and it pops up in another because that's the nature of addiction. And Bill says it is a problem, it's just not the problem. And unless you treat the problem, the spiritual malady, unmanageability, then in fact, you will have problems with addiction in different areas. Unmanageability is the key. Best kept secret in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous from my standpoint. We have a problem with our body, Dr. Silkworth, confirms that we have a problem with an allergy and a craving. It's not the psychological craving that is the definition in a dictionary. In the big book, Dr. Silkworth uses that word very uniquely, very specifically. You won't find it defined in a dictionary. He said the craving never begins until after you have a drink. You put the drink in and the drink chemical mixes with the chemistry of the body and it has an unusual effect in one out of ten people. The cellular structure at the biology level demands more of that chemical, alcohol, because it produces acetone or some other. I'm not a scientist. I've read some articles about it. That's what we mean by no choice and powerless. Dr. Silkworth was a psychiatrist and a medical doctor. He wasn't doing a formal study, he was, it, it was his opinion. But then Bill later on in the big book talks about the problem of the mind that Dr. Silkworth only alluded to. Bill says we're insane. He doesn't mean psychiatric and psychological. He means that there's something defective in our mind. One out of 10 people have this. Five out of 10 people have this, depending on your substance and or process addiction. Insane comes from the Latin word sanus, meaning health, S-A-N-U-S. And when you put an I-N in front of it, it means not healthy. That's all it means. It's not psychiatric or psychological. It just means that there's something defective with your mind. We're easily hijacked by the obsession and the content of the thought is a delusion. In simple language today, we would 
we would have the example of, oh, it'll be different this time. How many times have we said that? And how many times has it been different, meaning worse? It's never gotten better. And yet we consider, we can constantly think that it's going to either be different in terms of okay, or even better, the ultimate insanity. And we're powerless over that. Frank Buckman says that the transformation, the conversion, the change, the awakening of the mind can come from the six steps that they articulated and that Bill experienced. And then Bill converted those into 12 to try to prevent any wiggle room for alcoholics. I'm giving you the Reader's Digest version of many years of experience and experiment in the early recovery. But then Bill gives us a wonderful explanation of unmanageability, but not until chapter four and chapter five. It wasn't his intent to include them in step one, and yet it makes perfect sense. And in my third time through the steps with a fellow named Joe Hawk, he introduced me to the set-aside prayer and unmanageability for the very first time at 10 years of sobriety. Unmanageability as the spiritual malady. Carl Jung had originally surfaced the ultimate solution to addiction when he told Roland Hazard to go home and find a spiritual experience. Roland thought he meant religion, and Carl Jung confirmed, no, I don't mean religion. I don't mean going back to church. I mean literally finding a transformational experience that will change you radically in the way you think and feel and behave. Well, fortunately, Roland went back to New York. He did go to church, probably in the basement of that church the Oxford group was meeting, and he had his spiritual experience there working those six steps. He reached out to Ebby Thatcher. Ebby Thatcher reached out to Bill Wilson. Bill Wilson reached out to Bob Smith, and the rest is history. But they were all in the Oxford group. They were all working these six steps of the Oxford group until 1939 when Bill wrote the book Alcoholics Anonymous and articulated those 12 steps. Bill separated from the Oxford group in 1937. Dr. Bob separated from the Oxford group in 1939 when the big book was published. But that's the roots of our program of 12-step recovery. A specific methodology for a change of mind, a healing, a healing, I'm going to say it, a healing of the mind so that in fact we're invulnerable to the obsession. We have a spiritual shield that is given to us when we finish the ninth step, a spiritual awakening that's given to us when we finish the ninth step. It's guaranteed. It's the promise. It's the mission. It's the value proposition of the 12 steps having had a spiritual awakening. And we get to keep it if we nurture it on a daily basis. It's a way of life, he says. We're not cured. We need to practice.
because we have a disease that's physical and psychological. We have a disease that's spiritual. The physical biology and the psychological mental defect are treated with the program of recovery steps one through nine. The spiritual malady, unmanageability, is treated with the way of life, steps 10, 11, and 12. What does it look like? Page 52 has the bedevilments. I use that term from the vocabulary on that page in the second paragraph. The man asked me to make it personal and present tense. I am having trouble with personal relations. I'm 10 years sober asking these questions. I wanted a divorce after 25 years of marriage and 10 years in the program. I can't control my emotional nature. I was having difficulty with outbursts of impatience. I am a prey to misery and depression. That actually really isn't my orientation. So. At 10 years of sobriety, it wasn't as much of an issue for me at that point. I had a pretty good, I have a kind of a natural orientation toward positive thinking and energy. I can't make a living. I took it into meditation. I realized that I can't make a living that satisfies me. And the wee small voice said, you can't be satisfied with anything because you're a bottomless pit. There isn't enough pleasure or money or recognition or power or adulation. You see, when you ask the question and you get quiet and you really sincerely listen to the tiny whispering sound, it will reveal the truth. I have a feeling of uselessness. Not so much, but I, ha I was restless, irritable, and discontent at 10 years of sobriety, having had two prior spiritual awakenings. One in which the allergy was revealed, the other in which the obsession was revealed, in terms of the understanding of it and the experience of it, which deepened my relationship with step one in terms of no choice and powerlessness. But now I'm having at 10 years of sobriety, a new experience with powerlessness, no choice. I am full of fear. I am unhappy. I can't seem to be a real help to other people. I took it into meditation. I said, how does that apply? I'm sponsoring. I'm, I studied to be a priest. I studied to be a psychologist. How does that apply? My entire life has been training to help other people. And that tiny whispering sound revealed the truth. Herb, you don't actually want to help people. You want the reputation of helping people. You want the reputation of helping people. Oh, my God. I was in therapy at the time to deal with some of the wrinkles of family of origin and my personality disorders. And it was being revealed to be my narcissism. It's a personality disorder that cannot be treated by therapy and or medication. I said, how bad is it? He said, on a scale of one to 10, you're a seven and a half, and we put tens in prison. Oh, thank you very much. And a few years later, with that same psychologist, I asked him how 
bad it was. Remember the scale one to 10 and seven and a half. And he said, you're probably a two and a half. You never get over it. But the spiritual program that you have embraced and practiced on a daily basis has mitigated it to a place where it's contained. And I said, should I be concerned because I really like doing workshops and getting the recognition that comes with that? I try not to embrace it, but it's still there. Should I stop doing my workshops because of it's feeding my narcissism? And he said, pay attention, be concerned. Stay in prayer and stay in practice, but never let your concern get in the way of your helping other people. The work that you're doing is changing lives. And then he quoted scripture. God writes straight with crooked lines. You see, the spiritual math, regular physical math, one plus one equals two. But in the world of the spirit, one and one plus one equals five. There's a mysterious calculation there, an X plus factor that I can't explain. I cannot get here from there, and yet here I am. I did a lot of work, and I continue to do a lot of work, and I'm very consistent with my daily practice. But the outcome, the results, are disproportionately larger than my contribution to it. For me, that's the spiritual awakening. That's the spiritual experience. That's the mystery. That's the X plus factor that I can't explain it. I don't have to explain it. I just have to observe it. Step two is about making a decision. A decision about power. What I realized is that my concept of God was the very impediment to my relationship with the mystery. At 10 years of sobriety, the man asked me two powerful questions, veil-rending questions. What do you actually believe about God? And I wrote out a wonderful theological treatise. And I read it to him, and he was very impressed. He sent me home to write out an answer to the second question. The first question, what do I actually believe about God? The second question is, how do you behave? in light of what you believe you believe. And when I wrote that out, I saw my agnosticism, my doubt. My head had said a lot of theology, but my feet were definitely planted in my humanity. I was totally self-reliant. I didn't have a daily practice at 10 years of sobriety with my meditation that was consistent. I didn't rely on guidance from a power other than myself. I didn't walk hand in hand with the spirit of the universe. I was definitely self-will run riot. And that's why I was restless, irritable, and discontent. Up to that point, I did not understand, had never been exposed to those bedevilments. And I saw the truth of what Bill says at the end of that second paragraph on page 62. We can't even reduce it much by wishing or trying on our own power. The wooden stake in the heart. 
I can't even reduce my selfishness and self-centeredness. That is the nature of spiritual malady. That is the nature of unmanageability. I can't even reduce it much by wishing or trying on my own power. He asked me to choose a concept. Willingness was the key on page 47. Bill says it's the cornerstone. The cornerstone on a foundation of building a spiritual arch through which we walk to a new freedom. Choose your own concept, he said. What word or phrase captures what you need and want in the attributes and qualities of God for you? This power other than yourself. And be aware of step three which says we made a decision to turn our will and our life over to the care of God. So in step two, does the concept that you choose include a caring component? Does it include a power component in an antidote to step one powerlessness? Looking at my experience in step one, I need power. Looking at my anticipated experience in step three, I need a benevolent power. What is it for me? Is it healthy steps? Is it higher self? Is it the human spirit? Is it the Holy Spirit? These are all very legitimate questions that I asked over a long period of time. At one time, I was given the metaphor of a fish in water. The fish can't survive outside the water, but it doesn't know that it lives in water. And that was good for a while. But then later on, I was given the metaphor of the wave in the ocean. A wave comes out of the ocean and it has, a, let's assume it's a hundred foot tidal wave. And it lasts for three weeks. That wave is not the ocean. It has its own identity. It came out of the ocean and it is observable. It's a hundred feet tall and it lasts for three weeks. And then it recedes back in the ocean. The wave is not the ocean, but the wave is not not the ocean. The wonderful metaphor, a rather poetic and mystical analogy, if you will, of my relationship with power. I am not God. I am very clear on that from my fourth step. But from my meditation, I'm also clear. I am not, not God. That's that answer to the question, am I a human being seeking a spiritual experience or am I a spiritual being seeking a human experience? And the answer is yes. I am not God, but I am not not God. So it's a decision about my concept. And at that point, <clears throat> I made a decision. Sometimes it was father. Sometimes it was partner. Sometimes it was teacher. Sometimes it was healer. Sometimes it was lover. Over years and years and years, my concept of God changed as I do. And I came to step three, challenge to make a decision to turn to choose a relationship with 
this is not the instruction in the big book, but Bill gives us five relationships, three on page 62 and two on page 63, director and actor, father and child, principal and agent, employer and employee, creator and created, He gives us these models without giving us the instruction to choose a relationship. So this is my language interpretation of the big book that step three is a decision for a relationship, a relationship based on trust. I made a decision based on faith in step two, an empty, empty, empty decision. God is or God isn't, Bill says on page 53. What is your choice? And then in step three, he asks us to take action on the basis of that choice. I chose God is, there is a power other than myself. That's my hope. That's my faith. And then I make a commitment in prayer to turn my will and my life over to the care of this power. Bill says, this is the keystone in the arch. The cornerstone was the act of faith, that decision God is. That's the cornerstone, the stone that sets the direction of the entire building of the arch. Step three is the keystone. That essential stone at the top of the arch, at the peak of the arch, at the pinnacle of the arch that holds the entire arch together. There's a flow in life. Look at my hands here on the screen. There's a flow in life. That's just the same, that's a life force. What brings an acorn to a sapling to an oak tree? There's a life force there. I don't care to identify what it is at this point. I care to make a decision that it is. And I've been given free will. And my experience up till now is that I have a inclination to go against the flow. I choose addiction and I choose self-will and I choose instincts gone awry using book, words from the book. And the whole point of the turning, watch my hands. The whole, turn of, the whole point of the turning is to be in alignment with the life flow, to be in alignment with the life flow. I turn my will and my life over to the care of God, not to God. I own the car. I have the keys. I have the insurance. I know how to drive. I just don't know how to get to where I want to go when I know where I want to go. So I put it into a GPS. With our technology today, we have a wonderful metaphor for steps three and the balance of getting guidance in steps 10, 11, and 12, living by principles. I put in the address into the GPS because I know where I want to go. And then I follow direction. And if I follow direction, I get to where I go. I 
don't know where I want to go until I use my meditation. And then I put the GPS in and I follow direction in step 10. And when I'm out of direction, the GPS will tell me when I'm disturbed, there is something wrong with me. And I correct that and I correct it. And I turn back to be in alignment with the directions that I'm giving. And when I'm in the flow, my life works. This is the nature of emotional sobriety. Step 10 is the primary tool of emotional sobriety. We'll see a little bit more of that later on. The whole point of the spiritual process is the commitment to turn in step three, and then the actual action of turning steps four through nine. Step three is a commitment to turn. And in fact, Bill suggests that we do it publicly. He said we pray with another person, which was my experience. A decision for a relationship with a power other than myself, a power that cares so that I can be in alignment. Here's the question for you. What relationship do you yearn for? In step two, I asked you to ask yourself, what are the attributes and qualities that you need and want God to be and have? Just a few minutes ago, I asked you to ask yourself that question. That wasn't academic. That wasn't a rhetorical question. That was an invitation to you to come up with an answer to that question right now as we're sitting here talking, listening, being present to one another. What qualities and attributes do you need at this present moment in your life, God, to be and to have? And now I'm asking you to ask yourself, what relationship does that connote for you? As we approach step three and the balance of the work, Bill says we're in the bondage of self. We're walking through a spiritual arch through which we walk to a new freedom. We're building that arch. Step one is the foundation of complete defeat. This is where we surrender. Step three isn't where we surrender. In fact, the word surrender is not even in the big book, which was news to me when I was about 15 years sober. I got a whole new insight into step three. Step one is where surrender is relevant. I give up the fight. I'm in full defeat. I'm surrendered to powerlessness and no choice in my body, no choice in my mind, and no choice in my will. In my body, when I begin, I will always continue. In my mind, when I don't begin and I resist and I have information and I don't want to take the substance or the process, I will anyway because I'm powerless over it. Until I have the gift of grace of abstinence, I can't earn it. Somehow, it seems to be precipitated 
by my willingness to take the actions of step one through nine. But I can't keep it unless I do the work necessary to deal with my unmanageability and spiritual malady. All of this requires willingness to establish this cornerstone and the decision to turn, which establishes the keystone. And then I need to be willing to be willing to maintain the removal of the obstacles in me, the obstacles to light, the obstacles to power, the obstacles to the sunlight of the spirit. Bill uses that architectural analogy and doesn't bring it up again until the end of the fifth step. At the end of the fifth step, he says on page 75, now we've walked through the arch to a new freedom. On the PowerPoint that I'm showing you, I show you step five at the end of the arch there on the right-hand side. Well, when did we build it? We built it when we looked at the building block of resentment and of fear and of inappropriate and unhealthy sex and dishonesty and secrets and guilt and shame. This is the doorway to freedom. Steps one through five promises us freedom from our addiction, especially after we finish the ninth step. I'm going to pause here and I want to ask you to, I'm not sure what the next slide is here. Okay, I'm not going to go there. Uh, I want to invite you to pray the third step prayer with me. And I'm going to invite you to pray it antiphonally, meaning you don't need to know it. You don't need to read it. I'm going to lead you in it one word, one phrase at a time, antiphonally, meaning in the monastery, in the chapel, a row of monks on the left side would begin a prayer and the row of monks on the right side would then respond to the prayer back and forth like a tennis match, antiphonally. Phonus in Latin means word or sound, Anti means back and forth, antiphonally. I'll pray a word or a phrase, and you repeat it. You're on mute. I would encourage you to pray it out loud. Take a minute, though, and hear the promises of step three on page 63. I'm not asking you to look at the book. I'm asking you to have a meditation now as I read these promises of step three. When we sincerely took this position, meaning a decision to have this relationship, we have a new relationship. Being all-powerful, God will provide what I need if I keep close to God and perform God's work well. Established on such a footing, I become less and less interested in myself. 
more and more I become interested in seeing what I can contribute to life. As I feel new power flow in, as I enjoyed peace of mind, as I discovered I can face life successfully, I become conscious of God's presence. I begin to lose my fear of today, tomorrow, or the hereafter, the very fear of death. I am reborn. I invite you to pray out loud, antiphonally. Following my lead, I will pray a word, then you pray the word. I will pray a phrase, then you pray the phrase. I will use current language, eliminating the thous and the thys. I'll be using the prayer from the big book on page 63. God, I offer myself to you to build with me and to do with me as you want. Relieve me of the bondage of self, that I may better do your will. Take away my difficulties, that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of your power, your love, and your way of life. May I do your will always. I'd like to open it up for a few minutes to any questions, concerns, or sharing that you might have. And uh, then we'll get back to the second piece of work, which we'll be looking at steps four through nine. Uh, I'm going through a kind of spiritual transformation and what's happening is a lot of fears coming up and it's like, it's too good to be true and it's going to be taken away from me. And that's what's happening. And I don't know how to receive more. How do you do what? Receive more. What does that mean to receive more? Like to, to receive the healing and the new and the new perspective and the new consciousness. I'm not sure how to answer the question other than it sounds to me like you have this deep longing and you've had an experience and you want to amplify the experience and you think there's something that you can do to make that happen. Right, because I feel like I get it wrong. And do you have a sponsor? Yes. Do you talk to your sponsor about these things? Um, I, I guess I could, but I'm scared. Of <laughs> why would you have a sponsor? No, well, why do you have a sponsor? Right. I, I, it's pretty deep. I don't know. I have to see how deep she is. <laughs> well, then that would be the first area that I would go to. I, I found that my sponsor was not adequate 
to my experience in the spiritual life. And I had to go to step guides for my work in the steps. And I found them inadequate to answer questions in the spiritual life. I had to go to a spiritual director. And I found him inadequate to deal with some of my family of origin issues. And I had to go to a therapist. So there you go. There's lots of resources for us. And so, yes, I completely um, confirm both your experience and your questions about it. Find somebody who you feel as has an experience that can support your questions. Exactly. Oh, very but, helpful. But start with your sponsor first to, in fact, see what their response is. And if it's not helpful enough, then find other resources for yourself. Yeah. Um, but, but isn't that the itch that I talked about at the beginning? And so you show up and you have this deep yearning and you might challenge your meditation practice. Um, so let's talk about that. What do you do in meditation? Well, um, not much. And I've been struggling to even do the, you know how you say to do the minute? <laughs> well, wait, 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 wait. When you say struggle, what do you mean? So I sit there to do the minute and here, like I'm meditating and I, and I, okay, one minute meditation. Yeah. And then and you, I, and you do that. No, I get completely distracted. Oh, so you're not following directions. No. Oh, so if you want to have an experience, then you follow the direction of people who say, this is what you do action-wise in order to have the, an experience. Part of the beginning of meditation practice, as you've heard me say, is to start with one minute. But what is the one minute? It's not a prayer. It's not writing. It's not reading. It's listening. It's one minute of thinking and listening. The, okay. You... You can just listen if you want, but it's really good to start out with a question or a thought or a prayer, actually. Bill says, we ask God to, to direct our thinking, and it's a prayer like this. God, please direct my thinking. Then I begin thinking about the question or the concern or the itch that I have at the moment, and I listen. I listen deeply to the question. My, my thoughts and my feelings and my consciousness and my awareness during that minute, that's meditation. And if at the end of it, you feel nothing or distracted or it's okay, then you show up the next day to do a minute again. With that practice, eventually you'll begin to get some traction and the spirit will invite you for, why don't you make it two minutes? Why don't you make it five minutes? But be careful that that's not an invitation of the ego for an accomplishment of a task. Right. And, yeah. and so when I pray, that's different, right? That's different. Di different than what? Well, praying is just like I'm asking for help or I'm asking for connection or I'm trying to build a relationship. You know, I, I don't, it's artificial to try to make too many distinctions because I could see in what you just said, that prayer could be a wonderful meditation. I'm in a position of supplication and I'm thinking about the relationship with God and the help that I need. Oh my God, it won't, get a, it won't be much better meditation than that. You see, you see, the prayer is a prelude. Prayer are words 
but the it's the intention underneath the words that is the 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 the, um, the real intent and it could in fact be a wonderful meditation okay because so, i just yeah. think that i'm getting it wrong and that i'm not in in yeah. alignment you know all right now here's here's some very consoling counsel that i got from thomas keating who was my teacher in contemplative practice all right you can't make a mistake you're responsible for the effort and the results are none of your business. He said, the only two mistakes that you can make, the only two mistakes that you can make is not show up and leave early. Oh my God, I'm not responsible for the results. I'm only responsible for showing up in the effort. That was such a relief to me because I'm very task-oriented, like I think you are indicating you might be. It's, it's not about your thinking and your feeling. It's about your action. Right, got it, got it. Just got to yep. let it go. Okay. Yep. And, and, it, and that's where you then are making a decision based on faith, that what Herb is saying is true. There's no substance to faith. There's no substance to faith. It's a decision that's feels empty and thin and dark and yet it's the beginning the decision that i make and then the action that i take i take the action and you've heard it in i'm sure your sponsors and or in meetings act as if it's really what we're we're not talking about make-believe we're talking about people with experience and substantive actions but it's act as if these directions are valid. You've got to know that I'm well-intentioned. You've got to know that I have an experience. You've got to know I'm doing this because I know with 32 years of experience now, I'm 36 years sober, but the first four years were me just detoxing physically. Nothing changed. But the next 32 years, everything changed and it continues to change. And that's why I'm so passionate about this methodology. It's effective. It never fails. I went to see Richard Raw. I went to a conference in Richard Raw um, a few years ago. And I can't remember what the question was, but I just had a flashback because he kind of said, um, fake it till you make it. Yeah. And that's kind of what you're saying, act as you. Well, he's, he's learned a lot from the 12-step rooms. I learned a lot from him. Um, his book is Breathing Underwater, if you want to read I've his, his read take on the 12 book. steps. It's a great you know, and, and take it with, uh, he doesn't have experience. He's not right. in the 12-step program, right. Right. but he's got a deep spiritual intuition. So the book is really useful. I feel as if one program, I'm... I'm connected, the dimmer switch is brightening all the time. My meditation practice is deep and meaningful and I, I feel like that's working. The OA, I just don't feel, it just doesn't make sense to me that one program seems strong and, and growing and the other just isn't. And I don't really know what to do about that. Well, um... It may be the exposure that you have to the people and or the meetings that you're in. Um, you're in OA, are you familiar with a vision for you? 
No. It's a, no. It's a subgroup of OA that focuses on the big book, literally and fundamentally, and they have like three telephone calls a day, internationally, every day. Okay. A vision for you. Google it, and I think you will be connected to a group that will answer some of the questions that you're asking. That's I'm wonderful. very That's impressed with that group. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's great. Thank you so much. I, my question was just about the set-aside prayer. I had been saying the set-aside prayer, and then uh, on one of the assignments, we were asked to rewrite the set-aside prayer, and I didn't have an issue with brokenness until I started thinking about it. Um, and I'm curious as to what you mean by brokenness. It's not that I don't um, want to think of myself as broken or, you know, I mean, I have all kinds of undesirable, I have an addiction and undesirable compulsion. Um, but I, I feel like, uh, you know, my food addiction is something that's a part of me. I, it's something that I inherited it. It's evolutionary. It's, it's something that, that really came from whatever created me. I, I don't feel like that's broken. It's something I don't want to have. Um, or are you referring to the spiritual malady? I, I am actually in that area referring to the spiritual malady, unmanageability. It started out, I used the word alcohol, then I went to addiction, then I went to disease, then I went to brokenness. And recently I've been challenging the word brokenness um, and I've been having some conversation with people. Um, it really is a, AKA unmanageability, the human condition, selfishness and self-centeredness is really what I mean by it. And if, in fact, you're having any trouble with the words, change them to the words that resonate with you. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I changed it to humanness. Um, there, because that's my intent right there. You, you nailed it. That's my intent, my humanness, my, my, my uh, innate defectiveness as a human being because I'm material, and all material reality is defective because it's corruptible. It's dying the moment we're t even talking, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, thank you so much. Yeah, prayers are not about words. They're about intention. And that's why I want everybody to kind of like release, release, release this rigidity that we've developed in our religious traditions. All right, we've lost the soul of the different, you heard it, I'm, I'm, I'm spiritual, I'm not religious. You heard that many times. What does that mean? It's kind of like religion is the tool that leads us to spirituality. And it's very much like the, the image of the Buddhist monk, the teacher that stands on the path that points the way to the light and the disciples begin worshiping the finger perfect metaphor for this. Religion has encapsulated and is worshiping the liturgy and the rules and the orthodoxy rather than the original intent, which was to find and live in the light. Yeah? Yeah. Thank you. I'm clean and sober 44 years. How do I, how, oh, yeah, let me see, uh, deep. 
I need someone who will answer some of my questions. Because I do understand the dilemma. With 44 years, that would be intimidating to a lot of people. Um, uh, and so it's hard. You, you need somebody, a woman, I would recommend, I that recommend. has some time and that is a wisdom woman in AA. Uh, whether she's got 20 years or 40 years, it won't make any difference as long as she's a, a woman of substance. That's what I want. That was yes, the I, question. I hear it. I hear it. Absolutely. It's a very legitimate question. And I'm so glad that at 44 years, you're open to asking it. Yeah. I, I'm yeah. not yet. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I believe in sponsorship. It's, and you'll see it later on if we get there. Um, for me, it's the most important moving part of all of the moving parts of the program. Every, every part's important. But if yes. you have a sponsor who knows what they're doing and you have an active relationship with that person, you will do all the other moving parts. Thank you. Yeah, I need that. It's, you do. We all do. We, we yeah. need an accountability partner because we're human. Ah, right. Okay. Well, yeah. I know. I, mean, I, have, I have blind spots. You have blind spots. Yes. And, and somebody, I need somebody who will tell me the truth and risk hurting my feelings. Yeah. Yeah. Showing up for a three-hour session on the steps and you're 44 years sober. That doesn't get any better than that, quite frankly. So after we uh, take the third step, we take a look at what are the obstacles in us to the light that is in us. We have a spiritual meaning. That's the essence of who we are, this life force that we have, whatever it is that you call it. But we're born into a body, and we have genetics, and we have a family culture that we grow up in. And all of these are influences on our development. You've seen these, I think they call them nesting dolls. They're coming out of Russia, where the one doll is inside of another, and they're identical. That's who we are. We're built up this way with all of these influences on us. And we have this persona that we think is ourselves and is built up from all of these genetics and culture and experiences and education. The whole process of the fourth step is to begin to identify through our behavior, all right, what are these, in fact, influences so that we can unpack it and come back down, strip down to the real instinct insight into our meaning. You've heard about the deflation of the ego at depth or the deconstruction of the false self, depending on who you're talking to. All right. And that's what this is. These are not words from the big book, but this now is the, the experience that I have in doing these steps. These are the obstacles to power. The big book suggests on page 62 that selfishness, self-centeredness is the root of our trouble. Look at the diagram. At the base there, there's self-centeredness. This is the foundation. This is the unmanageability. This is the spiritual malady. This is the nature of our humanity, as we were discussing earlier in terms of that question of brokenness. And from this root, we have the fruit of resentments and fear 
and sex and dishonesty, secrets, guilt, and shame. These are the clouds in us that block us from the sunlight. Bill uses the term in the 12 and 12 in chapter 4, instincts gone awry. Instincts. I learned in biology and psychology, instincts, survival instincts, fight, flight, and freeze. Fight, anger, turning into resentment. Flight, fear, turning into anxiety, procrastination. Freeze, camouflage, hiding, dishonesty. When I understood that, I understood these are not something that we judge negatively. These are something that we observe as our normal human survival instincts. Resentment coming from the Latin word sentire, meaning to feel. To feel anger over and over and over again. And Bill talks about that um, in the uh, big book as the number one killer. In the 12 and 12, he has a totally different model. He uses the seven capital sins. I don't use that. I am pointing it out. Some people find it very helpful. He was under the spiritual direction of a Catholic priest at that time. From 1940 to 1960, he had engaged Father Ed Dowling, a Jesuit priest, to be his spiritual director. This is clearly evidence of that Catholic training that Bill got from Father Dowling. I don't use it. Some people find it quite helpful. But when we, in fact, identify the sources of our anger in resentment, the sources of our fear, Bill suggests on page 68 that it's about self-reliance. I'm giving you a very superficial introduction to step four. Christine, part of the Retreat Center introduction, indicated that I'll be doing a series beginning in September once a month, similar to this on different topics. I will be doing two of those events on step four, one totally dedicated to resentment column three and column four, to take a look at our delusional beliefs and our corrupt motives in column three and column four in the resentment, penetrating the unconscious, as I indicated in my opening comments. And then I'll do a second one on the fear and the sex and the dishonesty and the guilt and shame and secrets, so that we have a deep dive into the step four inventory, which as I said, is a key tool for the unpacking of the false self, the dismantling of the survival instincts that were probably useful at one point, but now we, we built a wall to protect ourselves as a survival mechanism and what we find out is, in fact, it's a prison, not a, not a protection wall. It's a prison wall. And we 
take that down and dismantle it through step four by identifying the obstacles in us, those clouds in us, and then under each of those components, Bill says, we're powerless. We're powerless over our resentment. So on pages 66 and 67, he has a prayer practice for the removal of deep resentment in the way of life document. You'll see that prayer. In the fear inventory, he says, you can name it, you can analyze it, you can talk about it, you can understand it, you just can't get rid of it on your own. So you pray. In the sex inventory, he said, you can name it, you can analyze it, you can answer all the questions, and you can be very clear about what your virtues are and what your motives are and what your dysfunction is. You just can't change it on your own. You can't even develop healthy principles on your own. Um, my, my words, not necessarily the big book's words, but I'm paraphrasing what my understanding and my knowledge and experience is in that material. It changed my life. Pages 68 through 71 is on the sex inventory in the big book. And the ultimate hammer he uses there is if, in fact, you continue your dysfunctional behavior, you're sure to drink again. This man said to me, Herb, you either stop your behavior or, or you get divorced. Otherwise, because he knew what my personal values were and my principles, he wasn't imposing his on me. He helped me surface my own. And I was being unfaithful to my wife. You either stop the behavior or you get divorced. Those were my choices. Otherwise, I would drink again. That's the promise on page 70. If we continue to hurt others, we will drink again. He doesn't use that threat often or lightly, but I heard it. And thanks to the results of the balance of this work that we're looking at right now, step five in which all of that was revealed, and my work on step six and seven, I was able to identify this as a character defect that I didn't want I had to, un, underneath the underneath the underneath, buried very deep, one of my values was, in fact, fidelity. I had never been conscious of it, nor had I lived up to it. And in my attempt to do the seven-step prayer, I realized that I wasn't even willing. I couldn't even pray the seven-step prayer intelligently and consciously because, in fact, I wasn't willing to give it up, which surprised me. And I remembered the counsel in the sixth step, which says, if you're not willing, then pray for the willingness. And I prayed for the willingness to be willing. And I called this man, and I told him that epiphany. And he said, wonderful, Herb, now stop the behavior. And he gave me a new insight. I'm powerless over the character defect itself, but I'm 100% responsible for the behavior. And he said, this is how it will work. You pray because you're powerless, but you call me every day and hold yourself accountable for your behavior because you're human. Within 48 hours, the behavior stopped. Never returned. Never returned. The inclination 
that never returned. The thought of it did, the inclination continued. And so I continued praying for the removal of the inclination. And over about a two year period of prayer and accountability, even the inclination went away. If you want to change, and again, I'm gonna say this, if you don't get anything else out of this time together, but this one thought and recommendation, it will have been worth your time and mine. If you want to change, pray specifically for the specific change that you want and talk to somebody either daily, weekly, or monthly in an accountability relationship about it. Pray consistently, hold yourself accountable consistently for the behavior, not your thoughts, not your feelings, for your behavior. Your behavior is who you are. Your behavior is what you believe. Your behavior tells you the truth. Your your thoughts and your feelings could all lie to you. Over time, they will get more truthful. But in the beginning, my thoughts were delusional and my feelings were demented. My behavior told me everything I needed to know. And if I wanted to change, I needed to change my behavior. And I discovered that when I changed my behavior, my thoughts changed. And when I changed my thoughts, my feelings changed. But at the beginning, it was about changing my behavior and holding myself accountable for that behavior. But then we went on to repair the damage. It was very important to identify the damage. When I ask people what harms uh, they did, what amends they're making. They talk about their behavior. Oh, I gossiped, or I hurt their feelings, or I, and, and quite frankly, it's important to know what your behavior is in the eighth step, but that's not the harm. Please hear this. It's not subtle. Your behavior is not the harm. The harm is the impact of your behavior on somebody else. When I said I gossiped about somebody, this man challenged me. Did they lose any opportunity? Did they lose money? Did they lose relationship? Was, was their life diminished by your gossip? He said, Herb, you're not that powerful and you're not that important. You feel guilty, you feel shame by your behavior, but that's not the harm. The harm, the answer to the harm question is, what was the negative impact on the other person? How was the quality of their life impaired or diminished? How was the quality of their life diminished? And in most cases, it wasn't. So there are several items to ask yourself in step eight. Who did you harm? What actions did you take? What was the harm that was done? And then specifically when you've answered what was the harm, the negative impact, then you can answer the fourth item, which is, and what is the appropriate amend? What is the appropriate repair? Amend has two 
connotations, as you can see on the screen. The first is, what am I needing to change in my behavior? Amend my behavior, change my behavior. And the other is repair. The first has to do with me, the second has to do with them. In some cases, you can repair that damage by paying the money back. You can repair that damage by sitting in front of them and acknowledging the harm that you did and having a conversation which they get to express themselves and heal from the acknowledgement and the expression. In some cases, it's appropriate not to meet with them or not to even address it. In some cases, you can't even find them. What do you do then? My experience with step nine is I've always been able to finish my step nine. The people that I can and should find, I do and I make the amend. The people that I could find but I shouldn't find and shouldn't meet with or that I can't find, I choose a spiritual practice of prayer for their healing. If, it, if it's a one day or a three day or a three week or a three month, I determine what the nature of the harm is and proportionately what the nature of the repair is in discussion with my step guide so that I don't get scrupulous and over conscientious or I don't cut myself too much slack. I try to maintain balance, objective, appropriate, healthy. I will determine what the spiritual practice is for healing. And then when I'm through with that, I'm done with the amend. How do you make amends to dead people? The same way in terms of a spiritual exercise, or maybe you go to their gravesite, or in my case, my father had been cremated. I went to the local cemetery. And I sat there and I had a large pad of paper and a pen. And I wrote out my amends there, asking for his spirit to be present to me. And I wrote it out and then I read it out loud. You want to have an experience of making uh, an amend to a dead person? Try that. Go to a cemetery as a symbol of them. Pray for their spirit to be present. Write out the amend. What I did, how it must have harmed them what my specific reparation is, my intention to repair the damage. And then after you write it out, read it out loud. I walked out of that cemetery free for the very first time in my life, free of a rage against a father who had been a bad drunk, but a very sick person. And I began to have compassion based on that prayer for the removal of a deep resentment, as well as the good instruction on how to make this amend. This man had the humility as well as the experience to know that he didn't have 
enough experience in a particular area to, so, to help me. And he says, I have no experience in that harm done to a woman 25 years ago. I want you to go to one of the wisdom women in the AA or Al-Anon program and talk to them about if it had been done to them, what would they want? Would they want it even to be addressed and surfaced? And if they do, how would they want it to be addressed and talked about? What would be the appropriate healing ritual for them? And I did that. It was humbling to go to a woman and disclose the kind of person I had been 25 or 30 years earlier. But she gave me very specific directions, which I followed. I was able to get the woman on the line and she was glad to hear from me. And after we finished, she said, I really, really appreciate the acknowledgement of what had happened. And you have set me free. It has been so healing. Now, those are not terms I used in my discussion with her. Those were experiences that she had as a result of that discussion. But I was prepared by good experience from a woman who gave me guidance. Step nine is the most difficult and probably the only step that you absolutely need guidance, experience guidance with. I've, I've directed people to attorneys in the program, medical doctors, therapists, accountants, insurance specialists, so that they can get the advice and the experience from experienced people that I don't have. But everybody can get free, that's the key here. We can get free. It's a forgiveness process. Look up the word in a dictionary. Forgiveness. A decision to release them. Look at my hand here on the screen. I looked up the word in a dictionary. Forgiveness. A decision to release them. Notice. A decision to release them. And when I decide to release them and I go through a process of amends and repair of the damage, I am released. And of course, that's the prayer of St. Francis, isn't it? That's the prayer of our Lord's Prayer. We forgive their debt and our debts are forgiven. We release them and we are released. We bring healing to them and we are healed. It's counterintuitive and paradoxical, but that's the spiritual life. Forgiveness, a decision to release them and the process in which we are released. The best book I have ever read, because it's the most effective book I've ever read, is the big book. It has precise instructions which I could not discern on my own. I needed help. I needed a step guide to shine a light on each page so that I could read the page and the sentences would crack open and their meaning would be revealed to me. The second best book I've ever read. And based on my Reader's Digest version of my background, you know I've read some. The second best book I've read is Forgive for Good by Fred Luskin, L-U-S-K-I-N. He's a clinical psychologist, a professor at Stanford University. He wrote his doctoral dissertation on forgiveness back 30 years ago. 
and then he converted it to a book that we can all read who are not trained in psychology. And I read it 25 years ago, and he and I did a panel together on forgiveness. He did it from the psychological standpoint. I did it from the spiritual and the 12-step standpoint, because the process is the same. After the panel was over, I said that to him. I said, I was struck by the parallel of the psychological process of forgiveness. The dynamics of it are the same as the dynamics and the process in the 12-step program in the spiritual approach to, to forgiveness. The words are different. The vocabulary is different, but the process and the underlying dynamics are the same. And he said, yeah, but you 12-steppers and spiritual people have a real advantage. And I said, what's that, Fred? He said, you have God. He said, that's the X, X plus factor. He said, I, I can't include anything that's non-material, non-measurable. I'm a scientist, I'm a psychologist. So you guys have an X plus factor that's a very dynamic, important factor in the process and gives it a, a lot more uh, energy and uh, potential probability for completion successfully in healing. It was very humble of him to admit that. Forgive for good the second best book I've ever read. It parallels with psychological dynamic and vocabulary, the process that we experience in steps four through nine. Forgiveness is a process, not an event. It's a change in our attitude, a decision to release. It's a change in our relationship with reality. We accept reality. Don't take reality personally. It's not personal. Reality just is. The law of gravity is the law of physics. Things fall to the ground 100 times out of 100 times because that's the law of gravity. It's a principle of gravity. There are principles of humanity. Spiritual principles, they're called sometimes human principles, universal principles. Honesty, simplicity, integrity, fidelity, many, many principles that have come down through the ages, through either philosophy or some type of religious tradition. In the way of life document, I've identified principles connected to each of the steps, building on the shoulders of giants that I am standing on. I've taken their lists and I've fine-tuned them based on my knowledge and my experience recently. And in fact, for 2020, in the Way of Life document, I changed my approach to step 10. Radically, actually, it's totally different because I have a different knowledge and a different experience with it. So you might want to take a look at that and use that as a method of meditation one principle a day or one principle a week or one principle a month. They will be grist for the mill in terms of guiding principles for living life. They're immutable, meaning they can't change and they're non-negotiable. Reality is like that. That's the benefit of the, set of, of the uh, serenity prayer. The serenity prayer says, what can I influence? 
I dropped the word control out of my vocabulary a couple decades ago. I don't control anything outside of me. I don't control anything inside of me. I have influence. Very little influence over outside of me. Some influence inside of me. I've walked every, I've exercised every day for an hour since I was 18 years old as the result of that. And the exercises have changed, obviously, as my physiology and my age has changed. But because of that commitment to exercise, I have a health that I wouldn't have had otherwise. I have an energy and a clarity today that I wouldn't have had otherwise. I pay attention to my food and what I intake into my body, especially since I've been sober. I've always been sort of health oriented, um, never thinking that my alcohol was a poison. But now, of course, for 36 years, there's been no poison introduced into my system. I have a daily practice of meditation and I have for 32 years. I haven't missed maybe 10 days in 32 years because it has a value to me. I take the actions. As I said, my feet tell me the truth. My feet tell me about my spirituality. My feet tell me who I am and what I believe and what my principles are. Not my head and my heart. They can and will lie to me and do regularly. But my behavior never tells me the lie. They always tells me the truth. In one of my med, I wrote a uh, meditation on forgiveness. It's in the Way of Life document um, after step nine. It's a three page, very dense, meaning it bears a lot of reading because it's very succinct distillation of principles and my experience and the process. It does combine some of the words and the dynamics from the Fred Luskin book. I've incorporated them into it uh, several years ago, but I was meditating on it about two years ago, and, and this phrase came to me as I listened to that tiny whispering sound. A forgiving person has no past, but an unforgiving person has no future. That's really, really my experience. A forgiving person is released from their past. An unforgiving person has a cancer that will corrupt them and squeeze out their spiritual life and eventually their physical life. Like the resentments, they create that bondage of self that we saw at the beginning of the fourth step. This was in a New York a New Yorker magazine article probably 40 years ago, this cartoon, Bondage of Self. Look at us in our addiction. But here's really the truth. There's no jail. It's a prison that we have created for ourselves. There's no ceiling. There's no walls. There's no floor. There's just the bars that we hold in front of our eyes, and we look through it, a victim of our own reactions and, and beliefs and motives. And we don't know that we don't know and we can't see that we can't see until we're given the truth of freedom. We enter the world of the spirit. I'm gonna take a break here. And um, again, 
ask for some questions and um, dialogue or shared experience. My question is, when it comes to resentment against systems and institutions, yes. um, is that a process of understanding the reality of the world versus, um, you know, because I have a, a issue with understanding like the amends part, like I didn't hurt the system. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. You, you've just brought in two things. You said resentment and then you said amends. You know, they're not related. Just because you have a resentment doesn't mean you harm somebody. And just because you harm somebody doesn't mean you had a resentment. I, I stole from a lot of people because I was a thief when I was young, all the way up actually through four years of sobriety, I cheated on my expense account. I had no resentment toward anybody. I just wanted the money. Oh my goodness. All this time I was thinking they were opposites. Well, no, you, you're thinking they're connected because right. there's a, and there's a lot of um, misunderstanding in the rooms because the bill says in the eight step, we make a list of the harms that we did. We did so when we did our fourth step. And what he's saying is in our fourth step, we do see in resentment, we do see in fear, we do see in sex the harms that we've done to other people, but it's not necessarily that we've harmed somebody because we have anger toward them. We might have an anger toward somebody and we've never manifested it toward them. Wow. Okay. I just need to sit with this because this has really shifted yep. everything. Thank you. Well, and that's what information does. Information clarifies so that we can get really specific. I, I'm a big book literalist and fundamentalist in the best of senses. I try to understand what the words are, not what I hear in the meetings, not what I read in books. I try to really understand it experientially. And uh, you'll find that I have a precision with my words that uh, sometimes can be quite maddening, but other times can in fact quite reveal the truth like that. As a black woman, directly, how do I align my feelings regarding my need to address social injustice with my growth spiritually? Yeah. I understand that this goes yeah. to forgiveness, but I am obsessed with the idea that if I don't help implement change, others will be harmed and even killed. And, and I'm just, I'm just like, I got to speak out. But you when I do. speak out, I am not letting people be who they are. Well, wait a minute. And, no, no. When uh, you speak out, you sp wait, wait, wait. When you speak out, you just speak out. Sir. They react poorly to you. That's their problem. That's not on you. Okay. But so I'm way too quick to comment when I hear something, even in meetings that uh, you know when well, you know well, then you, I, you're talking about you have a problem yeah well no I, I you say so. i'm too quick you said i'm too quick to comment then you need to pause because <laughs> here's how it works from a symbol standpoint step 11 and step 12 are two sides of the same coin step 11 is my relationship with god my spirituality 
Step 12 is social justice. It's one coin, it's integrated. They're not separate. I'm, I'm, I, I'm gonna have to read this stuff for days. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious, sir. Uh, like for days, because you put so down, your, you know, forgiveness your, wait, is not to condone. Yeah. Is not to excuse. Oh yeah, good. It's not to surrender justice. Minimize. I mean, I'm looking at all what forgiveness is not. That's right. And those are all the things I'm doing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's why they're in there as a meditation. That's exactly right. I'm not an atheist, but I have had uh, sponsees that are atheists. Yeah. And I don't see how they become spiritual. How, what is that yeah. process like? Well, what, what does spiritual mean in the context that I've used it? Spiritual means our relationship with reality, a relationship with myself and a relationship with other people. At the simplest human level, without getting involved in fourth dimensional language. All right. And so um, it's a challenge for them. But I don't see that it, I mean, chapter four is addressed to we agnostics, isn't it? He says 50% of us are either agnostic or atheist. And there's a group, in fact, in Toronto that um, are uh, atheists in AA, and they're fairly aggressive about it, in the, assertive about it in the best of senses. And I can put you in touch with them or, or give you at least a contact name so that your people can figure out how to integrate both their atheism and their 12-step process because they, they don't find it a problem. They deal with the life force of the universe, <clears throat> at which they call their higher power. Here's, here's the whether they buy into it or not is their problem or not um, and the way i do it is i try to bring people back down into the first step not going any further than the first step do they really have a an experience with no power no choice no effective power over their addiction and no effective power or living their life and when they have that experience, then I, I just say, so what's your choice now? If you do not have effective power in addiction and you do not have effective power in living your life, where are you going to go with that? Oh, maybe I need some type of an effective power in life. Well, whatever that is, you, do you think it's available? some effective power. Now the Buddhists would talk about my higher self. The psychologists would talk about my true self. My partner in, uh, he's a clinical psychologist, PhD clinical psychologist, Dr. Alan Berger, in um, doing my, uh, co-facilitating my emotional sobriety workshops. Um, he talks about uh, the best in me talks to the worst in me. He's 49 years sober. The best in me talks to the worst in me. From my standpoint, it doesn't get any simpler or more effective than that. 
So we don't have to impose either the book's language or my own personal opinion and language on anybody else. They just have to find their own experience and then find their own decisions about that experience. That's why an experience in step one will inevitably lead them to an experience in step two, a power other than themselves. Now, maybe other than the experience they've had so far, that's why that set aside attitude and prayer is so important because maybe they find, oh, I have inside of me a power I didn't realize I have, and my job is to access that unknown power, that mystery in me. Does that make sense? Yes, thank you very much. Okay, so you had said, write this down. Your behavior isn't the harm. The harm is the impact of your behavior, right? Yes. So in regards to the resentments, and you had said to a woman that asked you a question earlier, you had said that just because you have the resentment doesn't mean you've caused harm. What about the harm that you do to yourself when you have uh, Well, bingo, good. Excellent question. And you have to come to grips with that. Um, the big book is very clear on page 66. It's perhaps it was remorse and then we were sore at ourselves. And lots of people look back on their life and see how they have harmed themselves consciously or unconsciously through their addiction and through their poor behavior, their unhealthy behavior, their unprincipled behavior, how they've actually diminished their life. My experience with that is when I do step nine, creating the repair of damage to other people, I am creating a healing and a repair to the damage to myself. And then I suggest to people, if there's more work to be done in terms of self-healing, self-repair, be creative and take the opportunity. If you didn't get your GED, get your GED. If you didn't finish this class, finish that class. If you, whatever it is, be creative about bringing healing. You cannot change the past, obviously. Right, right. All right, you cannot change the past. What a coulda, shoulda is just a dark rabbit hole that is, has no benefit. What a coulda, shoulda, I did that for the first 30 days after my wife died. And my tiny whispering sound is very direct. After 30 days of what I coulda, shoulda, the voice said, Herb, even if it were true, she's dead. It's not productive for you to what I coulda, shoulda. Right. So now you have to be in acceptance and sadness and grief about the reality. You hear the difference? Yes. About reality. I can't change a minute ago, but I can live in the present moment. I heard a wonderful phrase two weeks ago. I'd never heard it. I'm sure it's been said many times, and you may have already heard it. Be where your feet are. Oh, my God. <laughs> How simple could that be? Does be it where your feet than that? are. Okay. Uh, exactly. It's kind of like, oh, my God. Exactly. I mean, Eckhart Tolle talks about the power of now. He gets very sophisticated with all his great words and concepts. But look at that. Be where your feet are. Be where your feet are. Okay. Thank yeah. you so much.
Oh, it's great. Thank you so much. Thank you. I've had some awareness for this over the past, you know, month or so. What I feel is not necessarily what's going on that my heart and maybe my intuition may be off. And, you know, you've, you've talked about how that feeling that, oh, I need to connect with a God on an emotional, powerful level can be a trap. And I was hoping maybe you could expand on that a little bit because I've had trouble with that over the past number of years. Well, and, and everybody has. Thank you so much for that because feelings are what we're all about as addicts. It's the tension that comes from our feelings uh, that creates a need for the addiction to diminish and control the tension, and then it becomes a boomerang that cuts us to ribbons, to use Bill's terms. And, um, and step 10 is really all about that, uh, about uh, dealing with our feelings. Step 10 says we enter into the world of the spirit. You see, we come out of the world of self and we deal with our body in the addiction. We deal with our mind in the addiction and the transformation. We deal with our will in unmanageability. We saw those in the first three steps. In the first step, those three parts of the first step. And we've now learned a lot more about our feelings and our emotions by doing steps four through nine. As a result of finishing the ninth step, Bill says we've been placed in a position of neutrality. In the title page of the big book, he says how thousands of men and women have recovered. Uh, all right, past tense a reference to placed in a position of neutrality with regard to our addiction, but he says we're not cured. This is physical sobriety, but now we enter into the world of emotional sobriety. It's, it's the way we're built. We have a body that has instincts. I mentioned those, fight, flight, and freeze. We have a Emotions in our limbic system, our second brain, millions of years of development, which are translated into the survival emotions built on those instincts, the survival emotions of anger and fear and dishonesty hiding. But then millions of years later, we became human beings. Our cortex has the functioning of knowing and deciding to take action. That's where our reflection and consciousness is. That's where our free will is. And the whole point of step 10 is to see that we're asleep, dreaming that we're awake. We have beliefs, as I said earlier, before step four, that are lenses that are distorted and we have emotions that disturb us. Step 12, excuse me, step 10 in the 12 and 12 suggests it's a spiritual axiom. Whenever we're disturbed, there's something wrong with me. That's what I discovered in the fourth step. I am 100% responsible for my anger. I'm 100% responsible for my fear. I'm 100% responsible for my dishonesty. You hear it all the time in meetings, my part in my resentment. 
I discovered I don't have a part in my resentments. Please hear this. I do not have a part in my resentments. I have the whole thing, 100%, not a part. And Bill says that and confirms that in the 12 and 12 and step 10. It's a spiritual axiom. Whenever we're disturbed, there's something wrong with us. We need to stay awake. I'm answering your question, Paul. It's a wonderful uh, uh, connection that you made. It shows me that you're very integrated with what we're doing right now because this is the normal organic question that would come out of what we've just done. How do you stay awake? Bill says you do inventory, you do meditation, and you stay accountable. These are my terms, not Bill's in the big book, but operating on principles and helping other people is the method of accountability. That he uses the term, uh, the metaphor of a rocket launch in step uh, in, in the big book. On page 25, he says, rocketed into a fourth dimension. Well, what's the fourth dimension? I guess we should ask, what is the third dimension? All of us have had the experience of going to a movie and we get glasses with 3D on the side. That D stands for dimension. What are the three dimensions of the material created world? Height, width, and depth. Oh, then the fourth dimension must be the non-material world. Rocketed into the fourth dimension means that I take the rocket, let's assume stage one is a relationship with power, and then I take the rocket to the second stage, a relationship with myself, and then I continue with the rocket in the third stage, a relationship with others. And Bill says, I've recovered. I've entered the world of the spirit. What does that mean? I have a revised and rehabilitated relationship with other with a capital O, God as I don't understand it. Others with a small O in terms of a service and helping relationship. I'm not cured. Of my unmanageability. I am not cured of my humanity, as somebody pointed out in our discussion. They took the word brokenness and they turned it into a synonym, my humanity. I'm not cured of my humanity. I never transcend my humanity. I'm always going to be human. My life is always going to be unmanageable on my own power, but I have a daily reprieve with the practice of Step 10, emotional sobriety. Step 11, improved understanding and consciousness. Step 12, enlarged effectiveness, compassion. I'm in orbit around the light. I'm going to have you take a look at that slide again. Watch this. My, my uh, person who puts my slides together is 40 years sober and a commercial artist and has attended three of my work three years of my workshop so she understands my work and every once in a while she surprised me when she first gave me this slide i put it up like this and then i did this oh excuse me wrong wrong side here and then she did that it's a wonderful dynamic that shows the rocket launch puts us in orbit around the light 
and we can stay in orbit around the light as long as we make these daily adjustments. You've seen Star Wars. We, we, we have an orbit around the light. We have a spiritual shield. This is our way of living. That's what Bill calls it, a way of life. Do I have a sense of well-being? Again, some more questions. Turning the burner up on the questions that we asked at the beginning of our work together this morning. Do I have a sense of well-being here? I have abstinence, assuming that you do. But do you have a life that you can say you're contented with? Or is your life filled with the bedevilments, serial suffering, as I call it? Unmanageability. This is the spiritual malady. This is what we have a daily reprieve from. If, in fact, we are practicing our way of life, clearing the channel with spot check inventory, filling the channel with guidance in the morning, especially, allowing that channel to distribute on a daily basis in helping other people based on the principles of humanity the principles of the universe. Some people call them spiritual principles. Bill says, watch for those four things that we saw in step four. Watch for them, resentment, fear, and dishonesty, and selfishness. He said, when they crop up, not if they crop up, he says, we take action. There's four components to this action. Pray because I'm powerless. Discuss it because I'm human. Make amends because if I'm disturbed, I'm usually going to disturb you and help somebody. I drop the term service to note my 12th step. Again, that tiny whispering sound in one of my meditations probably 25 years ago said, Herb, drop the word service. It's too sophisticated. Use the word in the big book, help, because it has earth and dirt in it. The word help notes that you will be frustrated. It connotes that you will have your time used, that you will get tired. When you're helping other people, you will get your hands dirty. The results, as I mentioned, the behavior, your feet, will tell you everything. Are you experiencing forgiveness? Is that where you live as an attitude? Rather than fear, are you in trust? The big book suggests on page 68, self-reliance is the source of fear and God-reliance is the source of peace and trust. Obvious opposite of dishonesty is honesty. Bill says that's the requirement, rigorous honesty. I'd like to turn the burner up on it to radical honesty. Radical, coming from the Latin word radix, meaning at the root level, at my very core of my being, I'm going to be transparent. That's what my sponsor asked me to go to have as my goal, transparency. I said, what does that mean? He said, your insides and your outsides match. 
I still didn't know what he meant in those early years. I do today. I'm undefended. I can use that term. I'm undefended. I have no buttons. You cannot press my buttons, usually. They've been removed with the surgery of the fourth through the ninth step over several years and several journeys through the steps. The buttons and have been removed and the puppet strings have been removed and circumstances and events and people do not control how I react. My reactions are managed and influenced deep within myself by my own principles and my own consciousness. Loving kindness has become the lenses through which I look. Loving kindness. Loving is my attitude. Kindness is my behavior. That's my goal. Do I accomplish it on a daily basis? Mostly. Do I get off the rails every once in a while? Sometimes, especially if I get overtired or have overextended myself or I've overcommitted. I'm human being like everybody else. But this is emotional sobriety, living with a sense of balance, living in the middle road. I get the question all the time, what do I know is God's will and what is my will? If you're looking at the screen under watch for, that's my will. If you're looking at the screen under results, that's being in alignment with reality. You can call it God's will if you want. I don't need to call it God's will. I call it reality. I'm in alignment with, and I have accepted reality as it is, and I deal with reality as it is, and I release my script about how it should be. I want healing and repair. I want to trust the universe as benevolent. I want to be, and therefore I will act as, an honest human being. And I come from a Conditional love. I would love to have and incorporate unconditional love, but as a human being, I'm conditional. But I sit in the presence of unconditional love every morning in my meditation. I sit in the presence of unconditional love every morning, hoping to absorb and be absorbed by it. Emotional sobriety is basically human development. We, we go from dependence, even on addiction, to independence. That's the abstinence that we're looking for. But real maturity and real human development develops to interdependence. And it's the balance of interdependence and independence that is the human life that you want to lead that's called emotional sobriety. I was reading... Uh, Melody Beattie's book, uh, Codependent No More, and she gave us the term undependent, meaning the balance between independence and interdependence. This is the rite of passage into true adulthood, both psychological maturity as well as spiritual matur maturity where I'm completely independent in the sense of the center of my gravity is deep within myself, but I realize I'm a social human being with connections to other people and a responsibility, actually, 
each one of us has our own responsibility to the environment around us. They're organically connected as a coin is organically connected with both sides of the coin. Step 11 and step 12. The perfect transition for us. I see step 11 and step 12 as a coin having two sides, a relationship with other with a capital O and a relationship with other with a small O. The step itself, step 11 says to improve my conscious contact. I use the word enlarge my consciousness, enlarge my spiritual growth in step 12 because of the phrase in the big book on page 14, where Bill says we perfect and enlarge our spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others. Oh, I enlarge my spiritual life, not through prayer and meditation, but through actual helping other people. This is spiritual sobriety, a coin that has two sides. Obviously, at least if you've read step 11 in the 12 and 12, you can see what Bill says about inventory, that it's organically connected to meditation because you keep the channel clear so that the channel can be filled. Steps of 10 and 11 are themselves a, a coin of a relationship with God and a relationship with ourself. Step 10 is a spot check inventory, it says in step 10 in the 12 and 12. We don't do it at night. We don't do it in writing. We do it on the spot when I'm disturbed. Step 11 has its own inventory. On pages 85 to 88, it says, when we retire at night, we do inventory. Some of it's the same kind as the step four and the step 10, but even in step 11, it's a little more positive looking at our assets and our contribution and what we can do better tomorrow for our growth, for our contribution to humanity. Prayer and meditation is probably my most favorite subject. I have done more work, more recordings, and I have a book on it called Practicing the Here and Now that was published by Hazleton in 2017, if you're interested. It has a panoramic view of what I call intentional consciousness. Prayer is when I'm talking to God. Meditation is when I'm listening to God. Contemplation is when I'm sitting in the presence of God. Prayer and meditation are the instructions of step 11. It says, upon awakening, we ask God to direct our thinking. In 1988, the man who took me through the steps broke the code for me finally on meditation. What is it? Now, I was a monk for seven years. I was seven years studying to be a Catholic priest. I had the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, and the environment was silence. I was silent for seven years. I left the monastery in 1964 and hung up my black robe and didn't meditate again for another 25 years. What's that? Well, that's because it had come from the outside, not the inside. I took my robe off and I left my meditation behind with my robe because it was all given to me from the outside. It had no value to me from the inside. 
And Bill said, we will do meditation when we have a value proposition. As air, water, sunshine, and food are necessary for the nourishment and sustenance of the body, prayer and meditation are absolutely necessary for the sustenance and nourishment of the spirit. And then you have to ask, if you're not doing it, do you believe what I just said? Do you believe what Bill says in the 12 and 12? Do, be, do you believe that step 11 is actually important on a daily basis? If you're not doing it, you don't believe it. I am very confrontive that way. If you're not doing it, you don't believe it. Don't tell me your excuses and your story. If you don't know how to do it, find somebody who will help you. If you don't have time, then it's not a value to you. We, we do what we, have, what we make of value to ourselves. And this man said to me, Herb, the instructions are very simple. They were so simple, I missed them. But because he explained it to me and I heard it, I have understood meditation and practiced it for the last 32 years on a fairly consistent basis. It says, upon awakening, we ask God to direct our thinking. He said, Herb, that's a prayer. Anytime it suggests that you talk to God, that's a prayer. God, please direct my thinking. Now, here's what's not in the big book. Then you begin thinking, trusting that your thoughts are the answer to your prayer. Oh, my God. I'm going to repeat it. it, it it's the code breaker for meditation. Meditation in the dictionary is directed thinking. It is not no thinking and silence and quiet and distance from the mind, which is the ignorance of people who don't understand what meditation is. Unfortunately, the folks from the East Asia and Tibet and China and Japan, India, came over and their English is their second language. And for their practice, which is emptiness and no mind and quiet and silence and distance from the mind. They called that meditation. That's not meditation in the English language. That's contemplation. Contemplation comes from the Latin term templare, meaning temple space. A temple space is the house of the divine, the house of God, the house where the spirit is. And you sit in the house of the spirit in the presence of the Spirit, and you be quiet, and you don't think. You just be open and consent to the presence and the energy of that presence. That's contemplation. Meditation is very active. It's the use of the mind and the containment of the mind to direct me, to give me guidance. That's the practice that Bill learned in the Oxford group. And what he describes on pages 85 to 88 in the big book, read it, highlight it, outline it. In the Way of Life document on pages 45 to 50, there's a script on the nightly review and the morning practice and the daily practice. A little bit in there on contemplation, which is not in the big book, but it does come from my experience. Ask God to direct my thinking, then begin thinking, trusting. That the thinking is the message, is the answer to the prayer. 
the thinking, the awareness, the consciousness, the feelings. That's a tr God's way of transmitting to us. That takes some time. It takes some discernment. It takes some practice, as Bill says in that material. Chapter one of my book describes all of these differences and the practice. And then the following chapters are using meditation and prayer and contemplation to approach each of the steps, looking at step one through the lens of power, etc. When we come to step 12, it's about change, as I mentioned. A change in the way we think and feel and behave, and it's done to us, not by us. I added this recently, but not without us. It's a collaboration, a cooperation, a co-creation, hand in glove, willingness and grace. My willingness and God's grace. My willingness to take action and God's grace to bring me over the goal line. Of course, Carrie, the message is in step 12. And Bill says on the top of page 89, nothing will so much ensure immunity. We have a spiritual disease. The inoculation not only is the first nine steps and also the spot check inventory of 10 and the guidance of step 11, as I mentioned from page 14, we perfect and enlarge our spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others. People wonder how they can minimize and begin to get free of their relapse. Begin helping somebody. It's the inoculation and the immunization. Practicing these principles Bill gives us four chapters to the wives, to the family afterwards, to the employer, a vision for you, which is about practicing principles in our fellowship, in our community. It's our responsibility to determine and discern what the principles are in those chapters. When you read them, read uh, looking for the principles. He never gives us a list, but he gives us indications. As I mentioned, the lot of moving parts to the program. Meetings certainly are important, but they're not part of the program of recovery. There's a, unfortunately, meetings, I wrote a, an article on when, when did meetings become the program? There's a couple lines in the big book about meetings. We hold meetings once a week so that newcomers can bring their problems and we meet in people's homes on a regular basis to have the fellowship that we desire. But it's not the program of recovery. I'm not dismissing meetings. They're critically important in the sense of the support of the work that we do. But the work that we do comes out of the instruction manual. Are the steps that have a precise process. Prayer, because in fact we're powerless. Service, because of contrary action. But the most important aspect is sponsorship, as I've mentioned. The word sponsor is not in the big book. But on uh, page 18, it has a couple paragraphs that profiles what it might look like, both the activity and the profile of a sponsor. 
answer. You might take a look at that. For accountability and as a teacher. This whole process of awakening is the turning, as I mentioned, right from the beginning of our discussion today. That turning from self-centeredness to other-centeredness. Other with a capital O, other with a small o. This is, in fact, the turning that is the transformation that is the spiritual awakening. These are the dynamics of the 12 steps as I've seen them, probably more information than you ever wanted. It's in the way of life document. All of the even steps are knowing steps. All of the odd steps are deciding and action steps built exactly for the way our cortex is built to know and to do. And step 11 and 12 reinforce that, improving our knowing and improving our doing. This is spiritual sobriety. It's a process. As I mentioned, the dimmer switch, it goes up a notch at a time. Physical sobriety, emotional sobriety, spiritual sobriety. But it also goes down a notch at a time. In the same way it goes up and integrates, slowly it goes backwards slowly and disintegrates with a little bit of unmanageability that's untreated, the spiritual malady corrodes uh, the spiritual shield uh, and the obsession comes back. We're vulnerable to the obsession. And once the obsession hijacks us, we will relapse. The light diminishes and the darkness returns and enlarges. I'm just going to put these up very quickly. You can look at them in the Way of Life document. People ask again, what is God's will and what is my will? The items on the left-hand side are a process or a product of my will out of alignment. The items on the right-hand side are the process and the product of my will in alignment. In alignment with reality. I don't need to use the word God. I don't need to use the word spirituality. I really just need to address our own humanity. My will in alignment with reality will give me this flow of love and trust and principles and honesty and freedom and healthy self-worth. But I have to be willing to do that in contrast to my willfulness, the use of my will, instincts gone awry self will run riot. We come out of the world of self through steps one through nine into the world of the spirit through and we maintain that in steps 10 through 12. This is optimal recovery, steps one through nine in contrast to optimal living, steps 10 through 12. It's freedom and happiness. That's what it does promise us, doesn't it? Happy, joyous, and free. Happy, joyous, and free. This is the experience of happiness, felt satisfaction and enjoyment, a sense of self-acceptance. These coming from the positive psychology that's been studied in the last 20 years and the whole subject and science of happiness. Harmony, alignment. This is what we get in terms of steps 10, 11, and 12, freedom from irksome cares and a radiant contentment, 
Are those kind of the words that you can use to apply to your current life today as you're listening and watching and participating in this um, event that we're having today? It's a balance, pleasure and uh, that comes from the brainstem and meaning, that comes from the limbic system and the sense of cortex and the sense of value. I would spend an awful lot more time, as you can tell on these. I'm just giving you the summary of the slides. To reduce suffering and increase joy. That doesn't get any simpler. Feelings are critically important. Paul raised the question earlier about feelings. Feelings are critically important. They're signals. They're the thermostat that tell us whether we're suffering or whether we're having fun. And the, and the recommendation is stop the actions that create suffering and increase the actions that create joy. Oh, my God. Can you hear it? If you're suffering, figure out how to stop it. If you're having fun and happiness and joy and contentment, figure out how to continue it. It really is that simple. I can't do it on my own. I need help from a power other than myself in meditation. And I need objectivity from other than myself in accountability. The spiritual, 12-step spirituality has a real wonderful formula. It's in, I think it's in the big book or the 12 and 12. I'm actually not sure where it came from. Trust God, clean house, help others. That's our way of life. That's the recommendation for our daily practice of living life. Who is coming to save me? Nobody's coming. That was a sign over a psychologist's office. Nobody's coming. I just love its directness. But in my meditation, I discovered I'm the one I am waiting for. Nobody's coming. Who is coming to save them? We are the one they are waiting for. There's the message of immunization for ourselves when we carry the message of recovery for other people. Becoming a lantern and lighting the path. I become a lantern. That's sponsorship for me. I'm not the light. I'm a lantern. I want the light to shine through me. Therefore, I have to keep the lantern and the lenses clean and clear and the light very bright. Step 11. Step 10 helps me to keep the lenses clear. Step 11 helps me to have a brighter light. And step 12 is then lighting the path for other people. So I'll, I'll be happy to ask uh, here uh, five or 10 minutes worth of questions and then we'll close close with the prayer of St. Francis, which I consider to be the prayer of transformation. I get impatient with my process sometimes. Okay. Um, you know, I need to, I don't know, give myself a break, you know, lighten up. Uh, it's okay. I'm doing fine. Just easy does it. Easy does it. Well, rather than slogans, what you might want to do is Spend a little time in meditation on what's underneath the impatience. What's underneath that? This is 
uh, rhetorical now. I'm not asking you to answer it. I'm asking you to uh, hear what I'm saying and, and experiment with it. Um, ask yourself the question underneath the impatience. What's that about? Ask yourself the question concerning this energy that you have that feels frustrating to you. Uh, what, is, what is that about? What is the source of it? And then what's the invitation? I, I just love that question. What's the invitation that you're receiving when you're having this vibration and this energy? When you were speaking about step 11 and step 12, you referred to capital other and lowercase other. I had never heard that before, and I don't know what that means. All right. So, um, well, wonderful. I'm so glad that you asked the question. It's, it's my way of saying God and people. God being other, capital O, other being the rest of humanity, small o. Got it. Thank you very much. How can I be of service to others if I can't even leave my condo? You asked uh -huh. the question, how can I help other people? What do you, how do you think you can help other people? First thing I can do is showing up at the meetings. Do you really want to help somebody? Well, you know, like when I go to my meetings later tonight and things like that, I'm going to share what I got out of this. Well, that might help somebody, but do you think maybe you could call somebody that oh, you're connected to or not connected to and see how they're doing and see if they need help? Yes, sir. There you go. Yes, sir. So we do practically. What can you do? What will you do? I'm a real practical person. I don't get caught up in history or academics or theory. How, how can you move your feet today to help somebody? Oh, you're not going to leave your place. Okay, so you have a phone, you have an email, uh, yep. you have a Zoom. Uh, maybe those are instruments of helping people. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm going to bring up the uh, shared screen again so that we can pray the prayer of St. Francis together. You're on mute, most of you, and if you hear anything, put yourself on mute. And pray out loud, please, this prayer of transformation. Listen to the process. Listen to the turning. Listen to the promises. It's all here in this prayer. I call it the transformation prayer. It's the prayer allegedly written by St. Francis. Please join me. Lord. Make me a channel of your peace, that where there is hatred, I may bring love, that where there is wrong, I may bring the spirit of forgiveness, that where there is discord, I may bring harmony, that where there is error, I may bring truth, that where there is doubt, I may bring faith, that where there is despair, I may bring hope, that where there are shadows, I may bring light, that where there is sadness, I may bring joy. Lord, grant that I may seek rather to comfort than to be comforted, to understand than to be understood, to love than to be loved. For it is by self-forgetting that one finds. It is by forgiving that one is forgiven. It is by dying that one awakens to eternal life. 
Amen. Eckhart Tolle, I quoted earlier, said, the secret to life in the power of now, the secret to life is to die before you die and realize there is no death. A meditation in itself. It's just ancient wisdom. And that's what the big book is all about here, is the deflation of the ego, that dismantling of the false self, that ego-centeredness, so that the true self can emerge and live freely and happily. Thanks, everybody.